This morning we embark on a new sermon series looking at the prophecy of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. Before we do that, I did meant to mention this earlier, but I want to say thank you for your generosity. Uh, As you know, our Lottie Moon goal was $100,000 and we raised over $114,000 for uh, international missions. So pat yourself on the back. Thank you for generously giving uh, to that Uh, important offering in our church. As we begin the book of Isaiah, obviously it would be very difficult for us to go through all 66 book or 66 chapters of Isaiah unless you wanted for me to preach through it for the next 10 years. So I thought it would be better to just break it up and we're going to be looking at Isaiah 40 through 55, which is kind of the middle section of the book. Chapters 1 through 39 is the first section, 40 to 55 and then 56 to 66. Outside of the Psalms, Isaiah is our second largest book in the Old Testament. And every prophetic book, no matter what prophetic book you're reading, whether it's Joel, Obadiah, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, every prophetic book has both of these things in it. A message of judgment and a message of hope. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah can be broken down into chapters 1 through 12, which is the judgment and the hope for Jerusalem. Chapters 13 through 27, which is judgment and hope for the nations at large. And then chapters 28 through 39, which focuses on the rise and fall of the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah's ministry spanned a total of roughly 40 years. So in the timeline, it would be from about 740 B.C. all the way down to 701 B.C. And according to Isaiah 1.1, we know that Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of the following kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He was married and he had two sons. Now Isaiah's judgment on the people of Israel is for their obvious rebellion against God. And that rebellion brings about the consequences of two nations that come in and ultimately defeat the nation of Israel. The first world power is the Assyrians. And the second is the Babylonians. The peace which prevailed throughout King Uzziah's reign came to an end when the Assyrians came in and they had these four kings that reigned from about 744 to 681 and those four kings ultimately put so much pressure on the northern kingdom of Israel that eventually in 722 BC the northern kingdom of Israel collapses. The capital city Samaria is overtaken by the Assyrians. And the main reason this happened is because earlier King Ahaz reached out to the Assyrians for help against Judah. And we'll read all about this as we go along. But this decision ultimately marked the beginning of the end for the Davidic dynasty. As you know, and I'm giving you a lot of background before we get going, but it's really important. As you know, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And after Solomon's reign... His son Rehoboam takes over, and he's a bad king. He doesn't make good decisions, and Israel becomes divided. 
And from that point on, you have the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called the kingdom of Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which is sometimes called the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had ten tribes. The southern kingdom only had two, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so you have certain prophets that are prophesying, some to the northern kings and some to the southern kings. But when the Assyrians came in and evaded invaded the northern kingdom in 722, this began the slow decline of the kingdom of Israel. So that decision was monumental that Ahaz made when he reached out to help for the Assyrians. And ultimately, we know that that northern kingdom is squashed and it comes to an end. And when the Assyrians take over that northern kingdom, they're base is only eight miles from the capital city of the southern kingdom, which is, of course, Jerusalem. And during the reign of Hezekiah, which is one of the kings that Isaiah prophesies to, things got worse for the southern kingdom. Egypt, from the south, wants to form an alliance with the kingdom of Judah. And the leader of Babylon was also wanting to form an alliance with Judah against the Assyrians. So Isaiah steps up when Isaiah or when Hezekiah is reigning and tells him, You don't need any alliances from anybody. You don't need an alliance with Egypt. You don't need an alliance with Babylon. Yahweh is the sovereign ruler of this nation. Well, what does Hezekiah do? We know that he ultimately signs an alliance with Egypt which, by the way, doesn't help him. And the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, comes in and turns on Judah. And the Assyrians impose a fine on Hezekiah's treasury. And he cries out to God. We can read about this in Isaiah 37. He cries out to God for help. And God does, in fact, deliver Judah from the Assyrian invasion. Now, in Isaiah 38 and 39, it sets up the context for what we're going to study moving forward. Here's what happens. In Isaiah 38 and 39, especially in Isaiah 38, we learn that Hezekiah comes down with this terrible sickness. And he is close to death. And he cries out to God and he begs him for more life. God answers his prayer. Gives him 15 additional years of life. And he tells him that Assyria will not be able to overtake Judah. And the second half of Isaiah 38 is this beautiful prayer that Hezekiah prays to God for granting him more life. Now you would think that if you and I prayed to God and said, God, give me 15 more years, and he clearly told us, I'm going to give you 15 more years when you were on your deathbed, you would think that would be enough for you to maintain your allegiance to God for the remainder of your life. But it's not enough for Hezekiah. Because in Isaiah 39, he welcomes in some of the Babylonians. And he shows them the treasury. And he ends up forming an alliance with Babylon anyways. And here's what we have recorded for us in Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now this prophecy that Isaiah gives Hezekiah doesn't come true during Hezekiah's reign. He dies in about 687 B.C. But after Josiah reigns, which comes to an end at 609 B.C., Judah had three more kings, and they're hard to pronounce, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And all three of these kings, here's the descriptions that you find for them. You can find this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 5, 9, and 11. Here's the description of these three kings. Every single one of them, this is what we have recorded in Scripture. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in, king of Babylon at the time, overtakes Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and deports the Jews twice. Once in 597 B.C. and again in 586 B.C. And you probably know that 586 date because that is when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple in Jerusalem. So now the Davidic dynasty is officially over and God's people have been removed from their homeland, sent into exile far away from home. And these are the questions now that the Jewish people are asking themselves. Number one, how did this happen? And why are we stuck in a nation that is not our own? Number two, is God faithful to his covenant people or not? And number three, has our sin been so bad that God has abandoned his people forever? These types of questions are what are being asked and set the context for Isaiah writing chapters 40 to 55. This is what all is happening historically. In Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 3, you see the story of Adam and Eve. Eve partaking of the fruit of which she was commanded not to, handing it to her husband. They eat And what happens? They're banished from the garden. This is the first mention of exile. They have been exiled away from God. And Israel comes along. They had been given the promised land and they could keep it under one condition. If they would be faithful to the terms of the covenant that God made with them. And they didn't. So guess what happened? They were exiled again into Babylon. And all of this, thinking about exile and questioning God's faithfulness and questioning whether or not their sin has caused God to abandon them is where we are when we arrive at Isaiah 40. And here is what Isaiah writes to us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh 
shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. From this passage, which serves as the introductory part of this section of Isaiah, two truths that Isaiah reminds us of in spite of this feeling of exile and abandonment and being separated from God. Number one, God has set apart a people for himself and is faithful to his word. And number two, God shepherds his people. So number one, God has set apart a people for himself and is faithful to his word. And number two, God shepherds his people. You can notice from verse 1 the pronouns that Isaiah uses. My people and your God. In the midst of exile, in the midst of feeling like the promises of God no longer extend to the Jewish people, Isaiah reminds Israel who they belong to. God is faithful to his covenant people. We say this all the time. Let me show you how this works itself out throughout the Old Testament. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God makes a promise with Abram. Here's what he tells him. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Move ahead to Genesis 15, verse 18. The covenant with Abram is established when God says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So God is telling Abram, all of this land will be to you and your descendants. As you keep reading in Genesis, you know that eventually Joseph one of Jacob's 12 sons, goes away to Egypt after his brothers sell him into slavery. And he becomes second in command in Egypt. And there is a famine in the land of Canaan. 
And his brothers go back and forth multiple times, and eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and Joseph brings all of his family into Egypt. And a pharaoh came into power that no longer remembered Joseph or Jacob or any of their relatives, and so he enslaves God's people. But in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, this is what we're told. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And beginning in Exodus 19 through Exodus 40, they enter into a covenant with God to become now a nation to receive his law and learn of a system of worship that will lead God to dwell with them. And in Exodus 24, that is the covenant ceremony where Israel becomes a nation before God. We then learn of another covenant that God makes with David, which is further proof that God has set apart a people for himself. Here's what it says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. This is Solomon he's talking about. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And as we enter into the context of Isaiah 40, the Israelites have forgotten everything that I just read to you. They have forgotten all of God's faithful covenant-making promises. Was their sin really so bad that God had abandoned his people? Was the covenant only valid if they faithfully walked with Yahweh? How can God still be faithful to a people that have sinned in this way? They have been removed from the land. They have been uh, no longer given a king to follow. What will happen? Now this question is still applicable to you and me today. This is really important to grasp. When we talk about covenants, there were conditions to the covenants that God made with his people. But even when those conditions were not met, guess what? God never fully abandons his people. Don't miss this. Yes, Israel violated the stipulations of the covenant. So they experienced consequences for their disobedience, which came in the form of exile into Babylon. For you and me, when we disobey God, when we sin, yes, there are always consequences for sin, but God does not abandon us. He loves us. He stays faithful to us. In our context of this prophecy, the discipline that the Israelites received was exile. But God can exile his people and still remain faithful to them because ultimately the covenant was not a result 
or their violation of the covenant was not a result of God's unfaithfulness, but it was a result of their unfaithfulness to God. So this whole section of Isaiah is ultimately for us to remember that the God that we serve is a God of forgiveness. That he is a God that always offers hope in spite of judgment. God will remain faithful to his covenant people. Someone from the line of David, even though there is no longer a king, even though they have been sent away from their homeland, someone from the line of David would come and iniquity of God's people would be pardoned. As Isaiah says here, how would it be pardoned? And who would it be pardoned through? It would be through the form of a suffering servant. The one who died on a wooden cross for the sins of his people. The only one who could fulfill all the conditions of the covenant perfectly. And the one who could also atone for the sins of his people. And the image that Isaiah uses to demonstrate God's faithfulness here is contrasting it with grass. Now, you know this strikes a chord with me. I love my yard. I love grass. I study it. I worry about it. I stare at it. I spend money on it. When I see dead spots, it ruins my day. Dry spots in the summer irritate the stew out of me. I love my grass. So thank you, Isaiah, for giving me an image that I can resonate with so well. But here's the thing about grass. It's a fickle Thing. No matter how much I water it, no matter how much fertilize I give it, how much I cut it, there's always going to be bare spots and dry spots and dead spots. It's never flawless. It dies in the winter, always. And it sometimes is slow to come back in the spring, which really irritates me, by the way. And the water that I use in the summer, which is outrageous on my water bill for the, for, for the uh, sprinklers. Guess what? There are still some days that it can't overcome the heat. And there are dry spots, no matter how much I water it, because it's so hot and it's so humid. And this image of grass here is a reminder to Isaiah, to God's people, to me, that ultimately, no matter what I do for my yard, God is the one in control of my grass. We... Isaiah says, are like this grass. We come and we go. Rulers rise and fall. Nations ascend to power and crumble. But, Isaiah says, the word of God remains forever. You and I have seasons of joy and seasons of sorrow and discouragement. We lose loved ones and then God gives birth to new ones. We lose a job, we find another one. We lose community, but then by God's grace, he gives us new community. And during all of this, no matter how we might feel emotionally, God never changes. He remains faithful to do and say everything he tells us to do. It is not God who is unfaithful, brothers and sisters, but us. It is not God who loses hope, but us. It is not God who forgets his promises, but us. And here's why we forget them. Because our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are deceptive. Thomas Watson, Puritan writer, in his little book, 
the great gain of godliness, writes that we should be fearing our hearts because they deceive us. He says they deceive us in the hiding of our sin. They deceive deceive us in flattering ourselves that we're better than we actually are. They deceive us with a false repentance, meaning that we might feel remorse short-term over something that we've done without actually repenting of our sin. Our hearts are tricky, fickle, and deceptive. 84% of Americans think the chief end of man is to enjoy themselves. 86% believe it's to enjoy yourself and do what you desire most. 91% of Americans believe that the answer to life comes from within. So when I tell you that the heart is fickle, just know that all of the cultural narrative coming at us is telling us that our heart is what we ultimately listen to. And yet God's word says something different. In that great anthem from Frozen, this is what Elsa tells us. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, I'm not, I love Frozen, so I'm not down on Frozen. I just use it as an illustration to show you that just about every movie we watch, even Disney movie, every TV show we watch, every song that we listen to or listen to is inundating us with this message that all of life comes from within. Listen to your heart. Trust your heart. When I want to tell you, God's word says the opposite. Your hearts are fickle. Do not trust them. Do not do what you feel like doing. doing what, do what God's word tells you to do. And I personally am increasingly concerned that our faith in God is too strongly tied to how we feel about God. Which is just what the Jews were doing here in exile. Because they were exiled, because they felt like God had abandoned them, they began to believe that God had abandoned them. But if they had only returned to the faithfulness of God's word... Objectively, they would have been reminded that no, God did not abandon them, even though they felt like God had abandoned them. So, if you are here today doubting God's love for you, doubting God's forgiveness towards you, doubting God's provision for you, don't listen to your heart, don't focus on how you feel, read God's word, and allow His Spirit to remind you of his promises throughout Scripture. So, trust God's word. Do not trust your own heart. And this is applicable not just in Bible reading, but in how we worship on Sunday morning. If you leave and you don't feel like you worshiped, you still worshiped. You just worshiped poorly. God has given us clear instruction in his word what constitutes corporate worship. And guess what's not in there? How you feel when you leave worship. So let's make worship about what it is. Giving glory to God. And over time, guess what will happen? In the process of sanctification, God will actually grow your heart to appreciate those aspects of worship. Maybe that right now you don't. Because worship's not about feeling. 
It's about giving praise to an objective, holy, sovereign creator. And he doesn't change regardless of how you feel when you leave this room. Stay true to God's word. The objective truth of this covenant, faithful God who from Genesis to Revelation always did what he said he would do. Never one time did he violate the conditions of the covenant that he made. And this is perfectly illustrated in Jesus himself who lived the perfect life on our behalf. So always remember, as the Israelites needed to remember here, God is faithful to his covenant people and his word is faithful. And then number two, God shepherds his people. Isaiah tells the Jews in verse 9 that they will be the people who attest to God's activity in their life. The good news of God's faithfulness to his people is ultimately not just for Israel. The message of hope is not simply for the Jews. It is for every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. And through rulers who rule with a mighty arm, he will ultimately care for his flock. This image of a shepherd is a well-known image throughout Scripture, old and new. And shepherds protect the flock. They nurture and they raise young sheep. They tend to their flock. And this is what God does for his people. He protects us. He nurtures us. He develops us. He raises us. And he patiently, over time, nurtures us more into the image of his son. This message of hope is that God will come. This is what Isaiah is telling the people. God is coming The line of David will not end after all. Exile will not last forever. Even when Israel is allowed to return home later on in the history of Israel, which we call the post-exilic period in Israel, when they go back home in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and some other prophecies, it's not the same. They're still lacking something. They go back to a Jerusalem that is not the Jerusalem from before. The temple is gone. Life is different. But Isaiah's prophecy reminds us that there is a king who is coming who will bring his people out of exile back home. Of course, we know this person to be Jesus himself who lived the perfect, sinless life, died on behalf of his people, resurrected three days later, and now reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But even for those of us who are in Christ today, even for those that have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ alone. Did you know that you and I are still in exile? We're still living in a place that is not our ultimate home. This is 1 Peter's message. What does he call them? Sojourners. He calls them exiles, resident aliens, depending on which translation. Peter is telling these Christians in that epistle that You are in a place that is ultimately not your home. Now, technically, yes, Dothan is our home because it's it's all we know, perhaps. But it's incomplete. And so we, as God's chosen people, still await Jesus' return. We await a new heaven and a new earth. We await a new Garden of Eden, which will no longer, you and I, will no longer be banished from. Not because of anything we did, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. So if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, this is not your best life. 
as we buried Judy Brown the other day, I shared with the audience that very same truth. Judy's best life was not this. Her best life is now. Not to quote Joel Osteen by any means. This is not your best life, brothers and sisters. Things get way better for all of those that are in Christ. So no matter how much you love your life, it is not even close to as good as it will be when we are with Jesus one day. Sadly, though, for those that are not in Christ, if you're here today and you're lost, I want you to know this is your best life. And that's sad, which is why so many lost people that we know build their lives around the pursuits and the pleasures of this world because this is all they know. And they think this is as good as it gets for them. But deep down inside, if you dig a little deeper, if you have conversations with lost people, you will find out that even if they think this is their best life, deep down inside, there's a void. There's something missing. They might not admit it, but deep down inside, it exists. They know that this can't be their best life. But Satan deceives, and he distorts our thinking into believing that this life is as good as it gets. And it's our job as Christians to tell them and urge them to look to Jesus as the one who can help them find their way home. Jesus is the one who offers the way out of spiritual exile into a restored relationship with God. And the best news about this way out of exile is that it has nothing to do with us. We simply place our faith in Christ. We turn from our sin, and He guides us home. And it was His death on the cross that provides reconciliation to God. Humanity's response is simply to respond by repenting and placing faith in Jesus. Every single one of us today, we want to go home. That's where we want to be. That's where we're most comfortable. Adam and Eve would have loved to have been back in the Garden of Eden once they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. The Israelites wished they had never left Canaan while they were enslaved in Egypt. The Jews longed for Jerusalem when they were in exile in Babylon. And even though they return home, they return home under the Persians, something was missing. But the hope of Isaiah 40 to 55 is that a king would come who would lead the way home. And for us, by the grace of God, that king has already come. He suffered. He died. He was resurrected. And he reigns. And he's coming again for his children. Jesus is the way out of spiritual exile into spiritual freedom and eternal life. Are you following him today? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this powerful message from Isaiah. And we needed to hear from your word today that you are faithful to your promises. Because many of us in here today, for whatever reason, whether it be through sickness, through difficult circumstances at home, through the loss of a job, 
through doubting you, whatever it might be, we are we're wrestling with whether or not you are truly faithful. I pray that the message of Isaiah would take root in our hearts today and that we would not trust our hearts, but that we would stay faithful to the objective truth of your word, which from Genesis to Revelation shows us that you have been faithful to your promises. When we're prone to doubt, may your spirit guide us to your word. When we're prone to think you don't forgive sin, may your spirit guide us to your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving a people who never remain faithful to the covenant. But thank you for sending someone who remained faithful to the covenant perfectly and died on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.